Republicans may have lost the White House, though President Donald Trump is contesting that, but that doesn't mean their party is battered and bruised. With a conservative majority on the Supreme Court and potentially retaining the Senate majority, Republicans are in a good place to keep President-elect Biden in check over the next four years. But what does the party do beyond Trump? I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Nicholas Lemon, a staff writer at The New Yorker, joins me to talk about what the mentality is behind Trump's challenge of the results, how party leaders may be looking to move past this election, and how they may position themselves for the midterms in two years. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. Nicholas, as we record this interview, the vote count sits at roughly 77 million to 72 million in favor of Joe Biden, with the president-elect at 20 more electoral college votes than he actually needs to win. And yet we're still in a really strange place. Georgia has announced a hand recount of its results. Donald Trump's campaign is suing to stop Pennsylvania from certifying its results. And we even have the New York Times running main headlines stating officials have found no evidence of fraud in the campaign. So why is Trump doing all of this? Well, um, this is kind of how he rolls, as they say. (laughs) It doesn't surprise people who've been watching him for the last few years or for longer that he's behaving in this way because this is sort of typical for him. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Trump actually believes he's going to make this turn out in such a way that he can remain in the White House deep inside. I think he's thinking, A, what is best for the Trump brand going forward? And he's calculated that behaving this way is best for the Trump brand. And B, what is a good short-term political strategy? And there again, I think he thinks this is a good way to achieve certain results politically that he's interested in. What results could those be? What is he interested in? Well, on the first, it's pretty easy. The thing about the Trump brand the Trump brand is, I'm a guy who doesn't, you know, as they say in Washington, color inside the lines. Mm-hmm. I'm big, I'm bold, I'm oppositional. I don't let liberals in the media push me around. I've got guts. And so this kind of behavior is what he believes, probably rightly, sort of sutures him to his audience of adoring fans really powerfully. In terms of a political strategy, One thing that's pretty obvious is there are these two Senate runoff elections coming up in Georgia. And, you know, the thought is that if Trump and people around him kind of whip everything up into a frenzy, it will motivate Republican voters to turn out in large numbers for the primary election. In that sense, it would be useful to sort of keep this all going for a while, just to kind of stir the pot. Is that why you may see some key Republican figures kind of silent on the issue? I mean, we've had Trump's sons, we've had senators such as Lindsey Graham trying to kick up a fuss over the legality of the election win for Biden, and you've had many in the Republican Party silent. Does that explain some of the quiet on that front? Yeah, I think so. Here's how I read this, and I'm I'm really reading tea leaves, I want to say. Mm-hmm. I suspect that many or most mainstream Republicans would love to see Trump gone. 
he doesn't make life pleasant if you're in his party. It's a little bit like the schoolyard bully, you know, getting transferred to a different high school, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think they also would have noticed that uh, in this election, the party ran ahead of Trump. Trump isn't pulling a lot of other Republicans in. The party seems pretty strong. So what people have said and what they haven't said is, is really interesting. The Republicans who have said things that are being played as supportive of Trump what they have said is things like, I want to see the votes carefully counted. What they haven't said is what the president himself said on election night, which is Donald Trump won this election and it was stolen from him through voter fraud. I'm not seeing Mitch McConnell at all saying that. I think their short-term worry is that they don't want to seem like they're sort of wimping out and playing the game the way the establishment wants, because that would annoy the Trump fan base, which mm -hmm. if you're an elected Republican, at least right now, you can't afford to annoy. But I, you know, I suspect in a lot of Republican hearts is this kind of thought of maybe we can just get through to election day, then the whole Trump phenomenon will fade a bit. Now, President Trump himself will do everything he can to keep it from fading. But I, I don't know that it's necessarily true that this is now Donald Trump's party and he will be the dominant figure in it forever. Do you get the sense that it's more kind of out of political expediency for Republicans not to speak up too much against the president? Or do you think that they may also realize that if they buy into what he's selling, that they could be in danger of stoking fear over the whole electoral process, which I assume many mainstream Republicans don't actually want to do. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a lot of this is, I mean, first of all, one could say in a hypothetical world in which people behave the way they should behave in a civics textbook, a lot more Republicans would do what former President Bush did or Mitt Romney did and say, we live in a democracy and it's time to accept this result and, and move on for the good of the country. Mm -hmm. So we just don't seem to live in that world for very many people these days. So I think a lot of it is just posturing that isn't meant and shouldn't be interpreted as a real attempt to overturn the election, but is motivated by a fear of angering the Republican base. Now, you mentioned Mitt Romney. His statement is one that stood out for me as someone observing from the outside, uh, basically saying that it's wrong for the president to suggest the election is rigged. And if your suspicions are correct and other Republican politicians feel that same sentiment, when could we expect that they may speak up on it? Is it a case of once the vote has been certified, once the electoral college votes, how far down the line could we see others come out and say, okay, it's time to move on? Yeah, I don't know, because the pure political calculus would be to try to keep this going all the way to the Georgia runoff, which is January 5th. That's a long way off. Mm -hmm. It's tough. I mean, if you think back way back to the 1950s, it took a really long time for the Republicans to repudiate Joe McCarthy, and many never really did. Even President Eisenhower, who was incredibly popular, it took him years to repudiate Joe McCarthy for the exact same reason of just, you know, this feeling that there's a lot of people out there who are Republican voters 
who love this guy. And you can't be a sitting elected Republican official and incur their wrath. Looking down the line, Donald Trump concedes or doesn't concede, but says he won't contest the results. What is the ideal scenario for the Republican Party? Is it as it's looking to shape up, we have a president whose party has a slim majority in the House of Representatives and is in the minority in the Senate and a conservative Supreme Court? Like how, what is the ideal play here for Republicans? There's a couple of questions here. So the ideal play, I think, is pretty simple, which is keep the Senate and build a narrative that will allow a recapturing of the House in the 2022 midterm elections, which is very plausible if you look at how midterm elections usually go. Mm -hmm. And then try for recapturing the White House in 2024, and then the Republicans would control the House, the Senate, the presidency, and the Supreme Court, which would be a pretty good deal for them. The real interesting question, or an interesting question, is what Republican Party would that be? Because I think you're going to see a kind of war for the soul of the Republican Party in the next couple of years that'll be very interesting to watch over questions like, what will be the role of Donald Trump himself? Will he be regarded as a or the leader of the party? Will the party go back to being a sort of Reagan-like party of business, party of limited government, and internationally oriented? Or will it be more of a Trumpian party without Trump with elements of pitching itself to the blue-collar population of the U.S.? So it really wouldn't be the party of business anymore. They would let the Democrats be the party of business. Senator Josh Hawley tweeted on election night, we are now the party of the American working class. That is our future. So that's different from what the Republican Party has been for many years, over a century. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. If people were initially drawn to a Trump candidacy because they felt left behind and none of the parties really spoke to them and they bought into his claim that he was going to drain the swamp, he was going to capture the frustration people had about government, how do Republicans keep those voters in their camp without Trumpism and without being the party of the working class? Well, there's kind of two versions of what they could do. And they're not necessarily uh, mutually exclusive. So version one would be just do all this sort of drain the swamp, we hate Washington kind of stuff. And version two would be to have a really different kind of Republican agenda that was in policy terms, more pro-working class. For instance, the Republican Party has been really uh, devoted for decades upon decades to free trade. Trump ran as an anti-free trader. So where does the party go on trade? Mm -hmm. So th that's more specific than saying, are we part of the swamp or not? What's the party think about trade? What's the party think about Social Security and Medicare? Is the party the party of limited government? Does the party believe in infrastructure building programs? Does the party believe in very heavy COVID relief programs? Those kinds of questions are going to be teed up. Looking at the vote count, this is an election where obviously urban voters took control and elevated Joe Biden to presumably the office of the presidency, barring any of these legal challenges uh, actually working out for Donald Trump. 
What does that say about the country currently and how it can move forward if there is such an urban-rural divide? First of all, remember, this was a very disappointing election for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. This was not what they expected. It was better at the presidential level. It was very disappointing below the presidential level. So I think there's a lot of rethinking probably going on in the Democratic Party about this idea that all the demographic trends are running our way and all we have to do is just kind of bide our time because the country's getting more urban, more minority, et cetera, and those are natural constituencies for us. Biden won substantially by stealing Trump voters from 2016, not entirely, but substantially. Hmm. You know, some of those white, rural, working class voters, he did better in those areas than Hillary Clinton did. And Trump improved his standing with minority voters. And remember that a majority, an absolute majority of the U.S. lives in the suburbs, not the cities. And that's very competitive. So I think the war for the suburbs will continue. I think the Democrats have got a wake-up call on November 3rd not to be so complacent that everything was just kind of breaking their way naturally. Looking at the results, it was not a positive election for the Democrats below the presidential level. What is it about the down-ballot votes that speaks to positives for the Republican Party? Is it the ability to attract Black and Latino voters? Is it the war for suburban voters? What are the positives here for the Republicans? Well, I think one positive that you won't see stated openly, but I suspect, you know, in their privacy of their homes, people are talking about is this party doesn't need Donald Trump to be popular. And maybe the underlying party is not just dependent on Trump and could be more popular than Trump. That would be a big opportunity area that you could get rid of the really super offensive elements of Trumpism and still have a popular party. That's a big finding. I think the the inroads, particularly with Latino voters, I'm sure getting a lot of notice in in the Republican Party is is a thing to focus on. And, you know, it's very sort of back and forth in suburbs. So you would see a lot of competition there. A lot of these swing districts for Congress that were supposed to flip to Democratic didn't flip. It was a significantly worse showing than the 2018 elections in House and Senate and even state legislative races for the Democrats. We have this weird political situation. We have a big, complicated, diverse country mm-hmm. with only two major political parties, and it's been that way for 160 years, despite many predictions of the demise of one or both. If you're only going to have two parties in the United States, each party is really going to be eight parties <laughs> hiding under the label of one party. Yeah. And each is a coalition. Neither coalition makes total logical sense. And each party is trying to steal subgroups from the other at all times. And that's been going on for years, and it'll keep going on. So I'd see it as a fluid situation. And at the same time, each party is having its own internal war very passionately over what its own future is. It's interesting you bring that up, because one of the things that I saw quite frequently on election night, on social media, and even in the days after is, how could 65, 70 million people vote for a racist? 
why does it get boiled down to such simplistic arguments when, in fact, as you say, there are these various coalitions within each of the two major parties? I'm going to go academic on you with apologies. (laughs) So there's this term that psychologists use called outgroup homogeneity bias. And what that means is the group that you're in is obviously very diverse and squabbling internally all the time. And the group that you're not in, where you don't really know them, appears to be unified and a sort of unstoppable juggernaut. So I think that's a lot of what you were hearing is a sense of people who don't know a lot of Republicans personally and don't spend a lot of time in the Republican world, assuming that all 72 million or whatever the number will turn out to be uh, who voted for Donald Trump can be understood in one simple way. That's just human nature to see the other group that way, but life is always more complicated. It's like if you were in high school and you saw that kid who was on the football team and had blonde hair and was dating a cheerleader and you thought, his life is perfect, really. (laughs) You know what I mean? And if you were that kid, you'd say, well, wait a minute. It's just an outsider's perspective. One of the things that Joe Biden talked about in his big speech was the idea of needing to heal the country. Everyone needs to come together and heal and we have to fix all of our differences. Looking at the Republicans, while some may want to talk about, you know, coming together under President-elect Biden and get to the hard work of making America a fantastic place to live, do either party really believe in the idea of healing considering that they're going to be fighting, as you say, there's a runoff in Georgia, and then two years from now, we're into midterm elections. How much healing is actually going to be done? Uh, Not that none. (laughs) I'm sorry to say. I hate to sound cynical. I mean, I love politics. I've been covering politics my whole life. I see it as a, a contact sport. Politics is fundamentally not about healing. And so that rhetoric is nice. The rhetoric President Trump has been using is very unpresidential and and should leave the scene. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes when politicians say, I believe in unity and healing, the subtext is that means my priorities get to prevail. You know, we're going to heal around what I want. If it becomes apparent that that's not how things are going down, then we go back to partisanship. I'm not that big of a fan of healing. I mean, if you look at like after 9-11 when the USA Patriot Act passed by an almost unanimous vote and, you know, because we were in a period of national unity and then in the cold light of dawn, people say, whoa, what did we just vote for here? Mm -hmm. You know, so there's something to be said for vigorous political and policy competition between two evenly matched teams because it surfaces dangers in taking a particular course. Well, it is definitely a fascinating way of looking at what will happen next for the United States. Nicholas, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Nicholas Lemon. More from him at newyorker.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.